Annihilation. Annihilation. Christina Georgina Rossetti, When I Am Dead, My Dearest. Shepard is gone, dragged away by a malformed bear. Lena's last call of her name echoes. Smash cut from night to day. Exterior, the shimmer, day. Daybreak, through the shimmer. Camera tracks right across the swamp. Second seven, the base. Early morning, tracking right. A cloudy sky. A tall lamp post encrusted with colorful tumors. And what looks like a tank covered over by plant growth. In Vandermeer's novel, the death of the anthropologist is understood only after the fact. The psychologist says she could not handle what they found in the tower and is turned back on her own. But the biologist and the surveyor find her body deep inside the tower. Quote, Turning the corner, I saw the figure and shone my helmet light on it. If I'd hesitated a second longer, I never would have had the nerve. It was the body of the anthropologist, slumped against the left-hand wall, her hands in her lap, her head down as if in prayer, something green spilling out of her mouth. Her clothing seemed oddly fuzzy, indistinct. A faint golden glow arose from her body, almost imperceptible. I imagined the surveyor could not see it at all. In no scenario could I imagine the anthropologist alive. All I could think was, the psychologist lied to us. And suddenly the pressure of her presence far above guarding the entrance was pressing down on me in an intolerable way. I put out a palm to the surveyor, indicating that she should stay where she was, behind me, and I stepped forward, light pointed down into the darkness. I walked past the body far enough to confirm the stairs below were empty, then hurried back up. Keep watch while I take a look at the body, I said. I didn't tell her I had sensed a faint, echoing suggestion of something much farther below, moving slowly. It is a body, the surveyor said. Perhaps she had expected something far stranger. Perhaps she thought the figure was just sleeping. It's the anthropologist, I said, and saw that information register in the tensing of her shoulders. Without another word, she brushed past me to take up a position just beyond the body, assault rifle aimed into the darkness. Gently, I knelt beside the anthropologist. There wasn't much left of her face, and odd burn marks were all over the remaining skin, spilling out from her broken jaw which looked as though someone had wrenched it open in a single act of brutality, was a torrent of green ash that sat on her chest in a mound. Her hands, palms up in her lap, had no skin left on them, only a kind of gauzy filament and more burn marks. Her legs seemed fused together and half-melted, one boot missing and one flung against the wall. Strewn around the anthropologist were some of the same sample tubes I had brought with me. Her black box, crushed, lay several feet from her body. What happened to her? the surveyor whispered. She kept taking quick, nervous glances back at me as she stood guard, almost as if whatever had happened wasn't over, as if she expected the anthropologist to come back to horrifying life. I didn't answer her. All I could have said was, I don't know, 
a sentence that was becoming a kind of witness to our own ignorance or incompetence, or both. I shone my light on the wall above the anthropologist. For several feet, the script on the wall became erratic, leaping up and dipping down, before regaining its equilibrium. The shadows of the abyss are like the petals of a monstrous flower that shall blossom within the skull and expand the mind beyond what any man can bear. I think she interrupted the creator of the script on the wall, I said. And it did that to her. She was pleading with me to find some other explanation. I didn't have one, so I didn't reply. Just went back to observing as she stood there, watching me. A biologist is not a detective, but I began to think like a detective. I surveyed the ground to all sides, identifying first my own bootprints on the steps and then the surveyors. We had obscured the original tracks, but you could still see traces. First of all, the thing, and no matter what the surveyor might hope, I could not think of it as human, had clearly turned in a frenzy. Instead of the smooth sliding tracks, the slime residue formed a kind of clockwise swirl. The marks of the feet, as I thought of them, elongated and narrowed by the sudden change. But on top of this swirl, I could also see boot prints. I retrieved the one boot, being careful to walk around the edges of the evidence of the encounter. The boot prints in the middle of the swirl were indeed from the anthropologist, and I could follow partial imprints back up the right-hand side of the wall, as if she had been hugging it. An image began to form in my mind of the anthropologist creeping down in the dark to observe the creator of the script. The glittering glass tubes strewn around her body made me think that she had hoped to take a sample. But how insane or oblivious. Such a risk, and the anthropologist had never struck me as impulsive or brave. I stood there for a moment, and then backtracked even farther up the stairs, as I motioned to the surveyor, much to her distress, to hold her position. Perhaps if there had been something to shoot, she would have been calmer, but we were left with only what lingered in our imaginations. Another dozen steps up, right where you could still have a slit of a view of the dead anthropologist, I found two sets of boot prints facing each other. One set belonged to the anthropologist. The other was neither mine nor the surveyor's. Something clicked into place and I could see it all in my head. In the middle of the night, the psychologist had woken the anthropologist, put her under hypnosis, and together they had come to the tower and climbed down this far. At this point, the psychologist had given the anthropologist an order under hypnosis, one that she probably knew was suicidal and the anthropologist had walked right up to the thing that was writing the words on the wall and tried to take a sample, and died trying, probably in agony. The psychologist had then fled. Certainly, as I walked back down, I could find no trace of her bootprints below that point. Was it pity or empathy that I felt for the anthropologist? Weak, trapped, with no choice? The surveyor waited for me, anxious. What did you find? Another person was here with the anthropologist. I told the surveyor my theory. But why would the psychologist do that? She asked me. We were going to all come down here in the morning anyway. I felt as if I were observing the surveyor from a thousand miles away. I have no idea, I said. But she has been hypnotizing all of us, and not just to give us peace of mind. Perhaps this expedition had a different purpose than what we were told. Hypnotism. She said the word like it was meaningless. How do you know that? How could you possibly know that? The surveyor seemed resentful. Of me, or of the theory. I couldn't tell which but I could understand why. Because somehow, I have become impervious to it, I told her. She hypnotized you before we came down here today to make sure you would do your duty. I saw her do it. I wanted to confess to the surveyor to tell her how I had become impervious, but I believed that that would be a mistake. And you did nothing, if this is even true. At least she was considering the possibility of believing me. Perhaps some residue, some fuzziness from the episode had stuck in her mind. 
I didn't want the psychologist to know that she couldn't hypnotize me, and I had wanted to come down here. The surveyor stood there for a moment, considering. Believe me or don't believe me, I said, but believe this. When we go up there, we need to be ready for anything. We may need to restrain or kill the psychologist because we don't know what she's planning. Why would she be planning anything? The surveyor asked. Was that disdain in her voice, or just fear again? Because she must have different orders than the ones we got, I said, as if explaining to a child. When she did not reply, I took that as a sign that she was beginning to acclimate to the idea. End quote. In the film, while the psychologist is determined, even stubborn, she is not homicidal. Interior, abandoned base, slash rec room, day. Except, we're not in the rec room. We're in the guard tower. The script says, Radic is sat on the ground, shaking uncontrollably. Dr. Ventress sits on a chair on the far side of the room, observing Radic with a neutral expression. Lena and Thornton are standing. Instead, we cut to Ventress, sitting, second twelve. We linger. Ventress sits on a metal folding chair next to another unoccupied chair. On the wall behind her, a box with four blue-green switches and three power outlets. Added by the production, surely, as they are U.S.-appropriate type B plugs, not type G, as they would be at the U.K. filming location. Second 17, Ventress reaches down and touches a bag out of frame. Second 19, wider angle, and we can see she is removing from Shepard's pack a small stuffed animal keychain. Possibly a bear, but not black. Someone's rifle lies on the cabinet beyond Ventress. She tosses the keychain onto the floor and reaches into the pack. Pulls out a couple of food rations strapped together. Looks up at someone out of frame to the right. Puts those rations into her own pack. Second 27 cuts Thornton and Raddick standing nearby. Thornton in tank top and a messy ponytail. Raddick wearing at least two shirts, long sleeves. Thornton breathes hard and looks at Raddick. Raddick, we have to go back. Angle and Lena from outside doorway, leaning against the open door. Ventress small behind her. Raddick continued, off screen. We have to go back, back now. Thornton, off screen. She's, She's right. right. Dr. Ventress. Right. In what sense? Lena moves to the other side of the door frame. Camera moves with her. She takes deep breaths. Thornton, off screen. We've, We've been, been attacked, attacked twice. twice. We lost, lost one, one of our own. own. Back to Thornton and Raddick. New angle. Thornton continued. We, we have, have evidence the previous, previous team went nuts, nuts and chopped each other up. I really don't know how much more right she has, she has to be. As Thornton talks, she moves her arms a lot. And this is the scene often cited as the first appearance of the Ouroboros tattoo, visible clearly on her left forearm. We have, of course, already seen it. On Lena in the future framing scenes. On the soldier from the previous expedition, Meyer. And it was previously visible on Thornton, though not as clearly when they were in the boats. Second 45, back to Ventress in the chair, putting something else into our pack. Something cloth. Socks, maybe. Dr. Ventress. We, we haven't reached the lighthouse. We still, still don't, don't understand, understand the, the cause. Angle on Thornton and Raddick. Thornton is not happy. Or, or the, the nature of the shimmer. Thornton. We, we have data, data observations, photographs. He has, he has hello footage. footage. Back to Ventress, unzipping another section of Shepard's pack. Dr. Ventress. All of which makes the phenomenon less explicable, not more. Angle on Thornton and Raddick. Thornton turns slowly to look at Raddick again. Raddick seems more resigned than upset, almost tranquil. One arm raised, holding the back of her head. In the script, we get an exchange about the mission. Thornton, that's beside the point. 
Our mission parameters are to get into Area X, find something out, and live to tell the story. Dr. Ventress. Mission parameters? Dr. Ventress stands. Dr. Ventress continued. I'm not sure I have any mission parameters. Thornson shoots a glance at Lena. Thornson, what the hell? And then we are back to what we have in the film. Dr. Ventress. I'm gonna get, get to the lighthouse. We cut to close on Lena, and Ventress is cut off as time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. 